This is the Washington State Indivisible Podcast, part of the Demcast family of podcasts. I'm your host, Stephen Cox. Today is part of our town hall series in partnership with the Washington Indivisible Network and Indivisible Tacoma. We present a conversation with Washington Attorney General Bob Ferguson. He is running for re-election in November. We talk about the status of some of his current legal actions against the Trump administration. To date, he has won 34 out of 35 lawsuits. And we get his thoughts on a number of hypotheticals concerning Trump and the November election. This conversation was recorded live on the evening of Tuesday, September 15th. So look, y'all, our rock star attorney general really doesn't need an introduction, but I delight in giving him one anyway. So Bob Ferguson has served as Washington's AG since 2012. Previous to that, he was a member of the King County Council. In 2017, he was named one of Time Magazine's 100 Most Influential People in the World. And his legal record against the Trump administration as of today is 34 and 1. I will also mention for fun that he's an internationally ranked chess master and he is running for re-election. We are so honored to have him here with us tonight. Attorney General Bob Ferguson. Hello, sir. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing great, Stephen. Great to see you. Great to see everybody. Hope you're all staying healthy and uh, and safe during this challenging time. But thanks for having me on. I really, I really appreciate it. Well, the the appreciation is very much on this end. And listen, I just have to say, in doing research for this, I ran down your Twitter feed, and it is just like a daily running tally uh, tally of victories against injustices, against the Trump administration, state challenges. Your work is nonstop. You are currently running for reelection. You have this wonderful family. I will just ask you bluntly, do you sleep? <laughs> I, uh, it's a good question, Stefan. I've not been asked that for a while. I'm lucky we joke about a Ferguson sleep gene in our family. So the good news is when I do get to sleep late at night, uh, when I go to sleep, I fall asleep right away. Like almost always within two minutes, I'm sound asleep. And so thank God, you know, that really I'm able to go to sleep. And so, uh, uh, but I'm lucky. I've just got a great team at the office, uh, obviously, who 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 just do this work and do it so well. So it makes my life a lot easier in so many ways. I'm going to bite my tongue on the sleep thing because, unfortunately, I did not inherit that gene. My father uh, has that where he puts his head on the pillow in two minutes, he's asleep. So I didn't get that. So uh, we're going to do some updates on current legal action right now. But first, uh, I just mentioned that you have won 34 times in a row now against the Trump administration. And I'm wondering if you could set the stage for us. What does it mean for a state to sue a president? And, And how common has this been historically? That's a good question, uh, Stefan. So let me maybe start about the latter question first, which might contextualize it. So historically, and by historically, it's say before Barack Obama was president. So before Barack Obama was president, you would see an occasional lawsuit by an occasional attorney general against the administration on an, kind of an isolated issue. You certainly did not see any sort of concerted effort by AGs, maybe a political party, against the president. That changed dramatically when Barack Obama was president, in which Republican AGs really mobilized in a concerted fashion and challenged the Obama, Obama administration dozens and dozens and dozens of times. Um, you know, some of those cases are very well known. They filed a lawsuit challenging Obamacare, for example, which was upheld by the U.S. Supreme Court. And especially in Obama's second term, it really ratcheted up. So that was a departure from, from previous administrations. No, I'll let you draw your own conclusions on, on why that was. Um, but with the uh, Trump administration coming in, it's fair to say that Democratic AGs had seen what Republican AGs had done with the Obama administration. Um, but the first lawsuit to be filed was Washington State challenging the original travel ban, a case that we won, as you know. You know, at that time, there wasn't, and that was two weeks in the administration. It wasn't like AGs were really having a lot of conversations on the Democratic side. I just felt that was a case that needed to be filed, and so we did it. 
Um, so, you know, in terms of how we think about those cases, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. I don't want to like sort of overstate them or understate them. What I would say is um, we're always very mindful if we're filing a lawsuit against the president. Um, you know, that's obviously consequential. Uh, when you do that, people in your state are going to have strong views about it. Um, a lot of folks, maybe those in this call, will think if you're doing that and winning, they love it. I can assure you, since I've spoken to virtually every Rotary Club in the state, I've spoken to all 39 counties in the state, um, that's not a uniform position, right? There are plenty of folks who feel as strongly opposed to that litigation as some of you may feel in support of it. And so I need to be mindful of that because I'm representing all the people of the state of Washington. So really, uh, Stephanie, I asked three questions before I file a lawsuit, pretty straightforward. Do we have good legal arguments? Is Washington being harmed? people or our environment? Is there a harm to our state or to our people? And lastly, kind of technical, but do I have standing? Can I, as attorney general, file the lawsuit? Do I have the legal authority to bring it on behalf of the people? If the answer is those three questions are yes, yes, and yes, then we file a lawsuit and we do it every single time. And if there's a no in there, Stefan, we do not, no matter what, no matter how outraged I am by the policy, we don't do it. And I just try to stay very disciplined about that. Well, it would appear that those three considerations drove you to victory here in your most uh, recent case that was announced today. A federal court just ruled that Trump cannot exclude undocumented immigrants from being counted in the 2020 census. I wonder if you could just tell us a little, for those who may not be familiar, uh, just briefly about this ruling. And then especially, what impact do you hope this ruling will have ultimately on the census? Yeah, so an important case, in fact, there's been a couple cases related to the census and how we count folks for the census. So just by way of background, as folks here know, you know, the census is in our constitution. Our constitution doesn't say, hey, every 10 years you count all the citizens in the country. What the constitution says is you count everybody in the country, right? And it's always been viewed as exactly that. Plain language of the constitution, you count everybody. Document, undocumented, you count everybody. Citizen, non-citizen, you count everybody. The Trump administration obviously has tried to change that. Uh, they started by wanting to ask a question about citizenship on the census, as you recall, which was now maybe a year and a half or so ago. We challenged that. That case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court agreed with the states, including Washington, that they could not ask the question. Actually, the better way to say it is the process by which they decided to ask the question was violated the law. It wasn't that they didn't have the power to do it, but they, the Supreme Court literally said the reason given by the administration for the reason to ask that question they basically said was contrived. That's the word. They made up their reason. And while you've got a lot of power as a president or as a secretary of commerce, you can't make stuff up about why you're doing things. You've got to be transparent. And they didn't meet that threshold. Um, so this latest case is almost a fault to that step in where the administration lost at the Supreme Court. They're still trying to find ways to impact census to limit who's participating, um, which in their view gives a partisan advantage to the Republican Party. That That's just their view. And in terms of who represents us in Congress, the census census count does things like determine how many people we have represent us in Congress, for example, how much federal aid we receive on all sorts of issues. So they try to do them oversimplifying, but they tried to go about using information that the government had to limit folks um, who were undocumented from being able to participate in the census. And so there was a lawsuit filed around that, and we prevailed on that one as well. Now, this one they could still appeal. Unlike the question about citizenship, that case is over. This one they could appeal, but we feel confident we'd prevail again. You know, all of this leads to, I think, a generalized perception of impunity uh, with the Trump administration. And that's something I want to dig in uh, with you uh, later on. But on a separate front, I, I want to talk about 
the unprecedented wildfires that we were having here in Washington and across the West, um, and they are, I think, inarguably exacerbated by climate change. You were part of a 21-state lawsuit against the Trump administration uh, against their rollback of the National Environmental Policy Act, or NEPA. First of all, briefly, what is NEPA, and how do you see Trump's rollback of it connected to the climate crisis? Absolutely. So I'm so glad you asked about NEPA, which sounds like an acronym, like what the heck is that? This thing called NEPA, the National Environmental Protection Act, went into effect in the late 1960s. Washington's then state U.S. Senator Scoop Jackson was the person who created it, authored it, and got through Congress, by the way, and signed by the president. And it's often referred to as the Magna Carta of environmental laws in the United States. I was on a call earlier today with uh, folks with Earth Justice. We talked about NEPA nonstop because NEPA is a law. Again, I'm going to generalize, but it's a law that for the first time required the federal government to essentially look before they leap when enacting all sorts of actions that could impact the environment or wildlife. So in other words, they now have to, which they did not have to before this law, examine what's the impact to species, what's the environmental impact to air, to water, whatever the case might be. So it's a very broad law, very powerful law. And in fact, one way we've defeated this administration, you mentioned 34 wins, half those wins are related to cases connected to the environment. Guess what? The administration often violates NEPA. So I think what happened, to be honest with you, Stefan, the administration got so tired of us using NEPA to defeat them in court because they wouldn't follow the processes and do the right analysis, right, that they finally said, well, let's just gut NEPA. Let's just gut that Magna Carta environmental laws so the AGs can't use it against us. So literally, that's what they did. We're co-leading that lawsuit with California. Javier Becerra is the attorney general there. We're co-leading that lawsuit to defend NEPA. Uh, we we're confident in that, but just to give you a sense of how important NEPA is, Last week, we filed a lawsuit challenging the drilling plan for the uh, Arctic uh, National Wildlife Refuge. Huge case, as you can imagine. Washington's leading a coalition of states, so we're the team putting that together. Guess what? A key argument we have is the administration violated NEPA by not looking before they leaped on the impacts to wildlife, to polar bears, to migratory birds that come through Washington state. That's a cornerstone argument for us. So NEPA is a huge, huge law. Maybe the last thing I'll say to you, you kind of had two questions is, of the 77 cases we've now filed against the administration, half our wins and half the cases are related to the environment. So almost more than any other issue, almost more than any other issue, I would say this administration is frankly, I'm not allowed to swear, right? So I can't say hellbent. Is hellbent swearing? You told me earlier. No, 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 you're clear. You're, you're good on that. Not good, okay. Yep. But this administration is hellbent, right, on rolling back bipartisan environmental protections put in place by Republican presidents, Democratic presidents, Republican Congresses, Democratic Congresses, Things we take for granted, Endangered Species Act, right? Things we take for granted as a society now, they're rolling back. So to say our efforts have really been significant on the environmental front would be a would be an understatement. And, and I would I would agree with that. Uh, and I would just ask you very briefly uh, before we move on from this: Do you anticipate a ruling before the election? It's 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 speculation, but I'm wondering what your thoughts are there. So on the NEPA case, I would say first uh, I should qualify. It's entirely up to a federal judge to decide how quickly she or he want to move a case. Start with that. Uh, that said, it's not a case in which we're seeking injunctive relief, which would necessitate a, a quicker ruling. Uh, so you can only get an injunction if there's like an imminent harm. Something's about to happen right now. And so for the proposed gutting of NEPA, it's more of a process. It's not happening tomorrow, for example. So I would say if we're in September, I would say it's uh, I would not anticipate a decision before the election. 
unlike our case on the postal service, which maybe we'll be talking about later on. I'm not sure. It's coming next. That, yeah. Okay. That's I mean. in that case. Yes. We're hoping for a decision, not just before the election. We're literally hoping for a decision like Thursday. So, uh, <laughs> so there are differences in these cases when we bring them, how quickly we're trying to get before a judge and get a decision. So, yeah. So let's indeed talk about the, the postal service case. Uh, this is a multi-state lawsuit against the Trump administration's policy changes. Uh, some may say intentional sabotage of the U.S. Postal Service removal mm-hmm. of sorting machines, mailboxes, et cetera. You recently, I believe this is in Yakima, asked a federal judge to order a reversal of what you call drastic changes by Postmaster DeJoy. Uh, did you mean for him to restore some of these sorting machines and mailboxes, et cetera? What, what can you tell us about uh, where things stand right now? That, that's exactly right. And, and just before I get into that, I saw kind of a, a question going across the screen there, which I hopefully uh, will get, was say, hey, if you win one of these cases, Bob, does that put the rule on hold while there's appeals? And the answer as a general matter is yes. Once we prevail, the federal judge rules in our favor at that moment. Whatever that rule is, it's put a stop to it. Uh, it can be a question whether it's just for Washington or a nationwide injunction. There can be a difference there, but it definitely puts a stop to it while the appellate courts do their thing. So that that is important. And so for this case uh, on the Postal Service, we're suing the Postmaster General, the Postal Service, and President Trump. Uh, it's about an issue you're very familiar with. Those things you've read about in the news media, changes, dramatic changes in postal service, changes in policies, no longer using overtime the way they were before, dramatic changes that are impacting mail delivery. So about a month or so ago, this is often how we decide to take cases, Stefan, is I asked my team, I said, hey, I'm reading about this. Can you guys do some legal research on the postal service? What requirements do they have to follow? Are they following the law? Can they make these changes on their own or do they have a process? My team came back and felt we had good arguments to challenge it. And one argument's a good example. The team looked at the federal law that governs the Postal Service. And in that law, there's a statute, and I'm gonna paraphrase it, but I'm almost giving it to you verbatim. The statute says, hey, Postal Service, if you're making changes to service on a nationwide or substantially nationwide basis, it's gonna impact service nationally, not just in one community, but nationwide, you shall, and that's the word in the statute, you shall run those changes by the United States Regulatory Postal Commission. I'm sure, Stefan, you are very, very knowledgeable about the United States Regulatory Postal Commission. Oh, absolutely. Uh, Yeah, for sure. (laughs) I knew nothing about it, but my team said, hey, there's this group of experts, and their job is to review changes that are going to impact how and when you get your mail. If you're a small business, when you get your mail and when mail goes out matters to you. If you're going to vote when you get your mail and when it goes out, that matters. If you are a veteran, 80% of our veterans get their medications from the VA, guess what? Through the mail. If that's coming late, that's a problem. So we decided to file a lawsuit challenging it in federal court in eastern Washington, in Yakima. And it's a credit to my team, Stefan, that 12 state AGs are joining us. They're part of our lawsuit. And that includes the most pivotal battleground states, Wisconsin, Michigan, Nevada. Those Democratic AGs are not filing their own lawsuits. They're joining our lawsuit. My team will be in court doing the oral argument. So long story short, uh, we've asked the judge for an injunction to do exactly what you said. Hey, these policies around overtime. These policies of having trucks leaving, even if they're leaving mail behind, that might just be five minutes later to get on the truck to get out there and get delivered, you've got to go back to the status quo. So our hearing is Thursday morning in Yakima, in Yakima before a federal judge, and we're asking for exactly that, that injunctive relief, and it'll be up to the judge to decide. Typically, you don't get a decision for many weeks after a oral argument, but for a case like this where it's clear time is of the essence, it frankly won't shock me if the judge rules that day or the next day about our case. 
I was going to ask that very thing about the timeline, uh, and certainly we're going to be watching this very carefully because of the ramifications on the election. I also want to talk about something here at home at the state level. You've been defending the state against legal challenges to Governor Inslee's stay-at-home, stay-healthy orders around the pandemic. I think there have been 17 challenges that you've taken on, correct me if I'm wrong, uh, including questions about the constitutionality of Governor Inslee using emergency orders. Where do things stand now with those challenges? Yeah, great question. Um, in fact, in the news just yesterday, I think Pennsylvania's group governor's emergency proclamations were struck down by a court there to a legal challenge. Uh, in Virginia, they've been struck down. So there have been legal challenges all across the country to governors issuing emergency proclamations. Uh, it could be everything from saying, hey, on a typical Sunday morning, Five blocks away, my family and I would be at St. Catherine's Church here in North Seattle. That's our parish. That's where we go. We're very active in the church. Obviously, we're not going to church on Sundays now because of the governor's proclamation. What's an essential business? What's a non-essential business? All those issues, we've had lawsuits challenging those decisions by the governor and the use of those emergency powers. My team defends those. We've had cases in federal court, eastern Washington, western Washington. We've had cases in state courts, big counties, small counties. You name it, we've been in court. We've prevailed on every one of those cases so far. So the good news is the governor's emergency proclamations um, on a whole range of issues have been upheld by every judge, federal or or state that has looked at it so far. So proud of the team, they're working really hard. We think those orders are helping public health, to put it mildly. Um, There's a reason why Washington, despite being the first state to get hit with COVID, is now in one of the best positions of states across the country. We have a great governor who puts science first in making those decisions. I'm obviously involved in a a lot of conversations with him. And just without going into details, those conversations, Stefan, I, I think I can say that, you know, when I'm in those conversations and, and we're chatting about decisions he has to make, which are very, very challenging to put it mildly, you know, I just feel a sense of confidence that the way in which the governor and his team go about making the decision is one that I think we'd all be proud of, right? They're asking the right questions. They don't feel they have all the answers, right? They're asking what the impacts are to the people of the state. Um, they're asking what their powers are and are not. Um, and relying on science to come to the best decision they can for a whole series of decisions that really are incredibly challenging. I want to shift gears with you and get your philosophical take on a few things about the judiciary and specifically how the judiciary has performed under the Trump administration. So it's my understanding that the framers intended the co-equal branches to hold one another accountable and, and Congress, and specifically the Senate, has failed spectacularly to rein in Trump. I'm wondering what your assessment of how the judiciary, both at the state and federal level, has held a, a rogue executive like Trump to account. It's an interesting question. I mean, I'm not sure the judiciary would view it as that's their role necessarily. I suspect that federal judges would say, hey, we get a case in front of us, we're just assigned the case that's in front of us. We're not part of some larger effort to hold a president accountable. AGs might view it that way, right? Uh, That, hey, we have a role to bring these cases before the federal judges. I'm confident judges would say, hey, my job as a judge is just to decide what this one case in front of me is. It's not part of some larger, larger effort. But a couple of thoughts about that. I would say that the one thing that has stopped the administration is the rule of law. There's just no doubt about that, right? He's got the U.S. Senate, right? He's got a lot of, you know, first judicial appointments, for God's sakes, he can sail through the Senate. So he's, the, the one check, the one most effective check has been the courts and, um, and winning so many cases against the administration. 
I would say that when you mentioned sort of the abdication of Congress in their role on a check, I think what uh, there was a conservative commentator who passed away not too long ago, Charles Crothheimer, very conservative guy. And he wrote a column about this very issue. Although he wasn't sort of saying so much the courts as the check. He said that basically our system was set up so Congress would be the check on a overreach of an executive, right? He said, this is the whole idea. To your point, Stephanie said, and this is a conservative guy, Charles Crossheim, right? Sure, he sure. said, Congress has checked, out, has checked out of that role. They're not doing the role the Constitution wants them to do, to be a check on the executive. He said, look, in our framework, if there's a vacuum, someone's going to step in. He said, that's actually the good thing about our system. Someone's going to step in. If Congress is advocating, someone's going to step in. And his whole column was a couple of years ago was how state Democratic AGs have stepped in to fill the role that Congress has abdicated. And I think that is a fair thing. So I think it's the the courts are, of course, connected to that. That's where we go. Right. I'm just confident the judiciary wouldn't view themselves in that light. The other thing I would say is that just to add one more uh, thought to it is. I'm often asked how you win 34 out of 35 cases against an administration. There's a lot of reasons for that. Most primarily, my legal team is fantastic. There's not a better team in the country. I mean, I mean that in all honesty. We, the bandwidth uh, and the level of trust other states have in us is, speaks for itself. We're leading on ANMAR. We're leading on the Postal Service. The most consequential case is first Muslim travel ban. It's Washington. Uh, but what I would say, though, is, Stephan, that by winning so many cases, the administration, when they, when the Department of Justice defends the administration, you know, it's tough to defend this administration in court, right? The things the president says, the overreach of the president's powers, the president, the Department of Justice literally arguing case on the first Muslim travel ban that the president's authority to issue that travel ban was, in their words, in their brief, unreviewable by the federal courts. Look, that's breathtaking, right? To say that the federal courts cannot look at an executive action and determine whether it's constitutional or not or discriminatory. So in some ways, the administration, I'm sure of this, has hurt themselves over time with building a reputation of being a little fast and loose with the facts. Citizens for question the census where the Supreme Court literally said, basically, you're lying to us about the reason you're doing that. Overreaching what the president's powers are. Look, when you lose credibility before a judge, there's going to be a ripple effect. And I do think this administration has lost credibility. And so sometimes these close cases, we're getting, we're winning those close cases. They've lost credibility. And yet this is where I wanted to get into the issue of um, impunity and the perception really of impunity. And this may be unanswerable, but I'm going to put it to you anyway. I think a lot of people see Trump defying the Supreme Court on rulings like, say, DACA or his tax returns, and they, they feel like he's not complying. They see him not complying with these rulings. And I, I wonder, is it a question of in, enforcement? How do you how do you frame this? How, how do you see it? Sure. Well, let's take the. So I can't speak about the tax case. That's not my case. So I see some headlines, but that's not a case I'm involved in. But take Dreamers, right? He wanted to undo protections for Dreamers put in place by Barack Obama. We have 18,000 Dreamers in Washington State, 800,000 Dreamers nationwide. Go into our schools, go into our colleges, work in our businesses. Look, those Dreamers are every bit as American as Jack and Katie. My kids are upstairs getting their homework done tonight, right? I mean, this is, trust me on that. Um, so he tried to undo that. We challenged it. We won. Washington co-led that lawsuit with New York, went to the Supreme Court. We prevailed. Now, look, the president's still trying to find some way to work around that, but he's constrained. The Supreme Court's ruled. And so at this point, dreamers have exactly the same protections they had the day before Donald Trump said, I'm removing those protections. They have those same protections. Now, around the edges, they're trying to limit that. Okay. And there's more litigation around that, by the way. But the basic fundamentals of 
those folks who are dreamers the day before Donald Trump issued that decision had the same protections they uh, today that they had when he made that decision. So in the 34 cases we've won, the administration has followed the court's orders. I do want to emphasize that. If the court said, hey, administration, you can't do X, they haven't done it. Now, look, I'm not naive. I worry every day about this upcoming election. Um, what's going to happen with the election? Will the president honor the election? What happens if he does not honor the election? What constitutional crisis could arise from that to make sure my team is prepared for that and that we're in a position to help states or be part of a, an effort to make sure the election results are honored? So I don't want to be naive about what the future could be, but it is worth emphasizing of the wins we've had, the administration has followed, no matter how begrudgingly it may have been, they have, they have followed the federal judge's orders. Speaking of which, I'm wondering if you would entertain a few hypotheticals for us, because we've certainly got many questions along those lines um, about the election. So let's start with Trump trying to declare victory early on election night before all mail-in votes are counted. What can state's attorneys general do in response to that? Sure. And I I think I saw a thing flicker across. Hopefully I captured someone's question was about DACA saying, that they didn't quite track my answer because isn't the president the president limit doc again recently? So whoever was asking that, I'm sorry I didn't catch the name. Yes, it was, it was Tina right. from uh, from Seattle Indivisible, I believe. Thanks. So so you're you're absolutely right, Tina, that the administration is trying to make it more challenging. In other words, if you're a dreamer, you got to renew your status more frequently. Not taking new dreamers on, for example, right? So we have challenged that as well, right? So but if you're a dreamer, the day President Trump announced he was taking away your protections, you still have those protections today. What the administration is trying to do is make life more difficult for you by how frequently you've got to renew, but your basic status here, protected status as a dreamer, is still in place. There is an impact to potentially new dreamers who want to become dreamers. There could be an impact there, but there is a new lawsuit surrounding that. So sorry if I wasn't clear on that. And then, sorry, just, you're asking me if on the fall. So, yeah, so, so the, the hypothetical that I was asking, and I, and I have a couple for you, uh, okay. is if Trump tries to declare victory on election night before all the mail-in votes are counted, what can state's attorneys general do in response to that? So that's an important question, obviously. Um, I guess a couple of thoughts. So partly, there's been a lot of conversations going on with my colleagues and I, and by the way, others as well, organizations, um, so I won't go into detail in those conversations. I hope you understand, uh, but I can talk a little bit about it. So what I would say is it's been a, a while ago that within our own office in the AG's office in Washington state, uh, we began talking about this, everything from asking my team, gosh, I don't even know Stephen, early this year to look at, could the president try to move the election because of COVID? Could he delay it? Can he do that? What would be the best arguments if he tried to do that? And so literally the team put together a lengthy, detailed memorandum for me months ago, anticipating that potential thing. Um, So we spend a fair amount of time. How about this? If you're on this Zoom meeting and there's like a specific issue, you wonder, well, can they do that with the election or do this with the election? You can be confident there's someone in my office thinking about that, okay? Or another AG's office who we're working with, we're thinking about that and talking about that. And so... Look, if, for example, the president tried to move the election, I can guarantee you we've done sufficient work that we could file a lawsuit the next day. Full stop. The team's ready to go. It's not like we got to like wake up the next morning. Oh, man, what do we do? The team knows what to do. They've done the research. They're ready to roll. So we do that in all sorts of different hypothetical scenarios, Stefan, and hope to God we never have to get to that point. But I think a reason, again, that we've been successful is we try to anticipate what the administration is going to do and get ourselves ready. What I can say is for Washington, we, of course, knock on wood, are not a battleground state for national politics, obviously, right? 
Now, that said, we have a team in my office that is battle-tested in litigating with this administration and winning over and over. We've never lost a case we've led by, for example, and have folks with expertise in elections law. And so, uh, as an example, some of the key folks in my office, we've already identified a team who could be helpful with other states or potential litigation if there is that type of crisis that arises the day after the election. And so that doesn't mean necessarily it's a lawsuit here in Washington, but maybe we're assisting another state because we have resources. So literally it's down to the level of saying, hey, no Purcell, my sister general, check your schedule for the week after the election and make sure you're not, you'll have an argument schedule at the state Supreme Court or at the Ninth Circuit, I need you free, right? To make sure if something comes up, you're ready to go. So we have literally a team in place. Their schedules are, are available in case there is work like that that comes up. And we're in regular, I had a conversation just yesterday with Democratic AGs about this very subject. So I won't go into too much more detail if that's okay, but I guess I'd want people to know uh, the team is on it and we're coordinating with other Democratic AGs on, on this very effort. I will ask you something a little less direct that has to do more with uh, GOP secretaries of state. If they were to refuse to certify results, what can other states' attorneys general do? Or is this a, a Supreme Court matter? So I see. So your question is in a, in another state, so let's take a, a battleground state somewhere. Correct. With, with say, a, a Republican secretary of state. So you would undoubtedly have right litigation around that. Who's in the right position to bring that litigation might depend. So, for example, in Washington state, my office doesn't sue our clients. The secretary of state is my client, right? We give legal advice to the secretary of state. We give legal advice to the governor. So it'd be weird, right, to put it mildly, for us to sue a client. So I can't, every state has different systems with their AGs and, and those secretary of states. But in other states, would you see litigation around that? Absolutely, right? Those are individuals, organizations, whatever it might be. To your question of where that litigation would end up, of course, you'd have lower court decisions, presumably, but for cases of that magnitude, I think Bush v. Gore, right, for a case of that magnitude, if it truly would be um, determinative of the election or potentially determinative election, look, I don't have much doubt that that gets resolved in only one place, that's your United States Supreme Court. So law would depend, Stefan, on, hey, is it determined the election or is it more, hey, deciding a governor's race or a Senate race? If it's national, if it's impacting the election, it's come down to one state, you have a Bush v. Gore situation, and the path there is is fairly well known, yes. We have a number of listener questions. I'm hoping to I know that you have uh, an out uh, very shortly here, so I'd like to get to as, as many of these as I can. Um, sure. You've sued the Trump administration, as we know, but Lisa asks, can Washington sue the Senate for lack of enforcement of laws meant to protect the well-being of the public. You are tasked with defending the public interest according to state law. What are your thoughts on that? I mean, I've, we've never done that before. It would have to be uh, an action that we thought was somehow unconstitutional impacting, right, the state of Washington. But typically, if, if, the, if the U.S. Senate is acting, right, um, it would be difficult to file a lawsuit against the Senate, right? The president, we file lawsuits against the president because he issues all these executive orders on his own, absent the legislative process, right? He's going exceeding his authority. I guess in a theoretical world, you could have a legislative body that's somehow exceeding their authority and that's impacting Washington state. Um, but that that has not been we've run into so far. So know that that would not be something we've had at this point. I'm not aware of any AG who's done that. But the president gets the focus in part because Dreamers is a good example. Postal service, citizenship web on the census. That's the president and or his cabinet, right? Those officials, the secretary of commerce when it comes to the census. Uh, Betsy DeVos, we've had a lot of litigation against Betsy DeVos, Department of Education, and her not following the rule of law. 
And so sometimes maybe there's a better answer to this question, Stefan, is like with Betsy DeVos, we have filed lawsuits against her because, for example, around the CARES Act, Congress acts and adopts the CARES Act. Betsy DeVos interprets what Congress has done and has limited who can access those that CARES Act funding. For example, she tried to put more money into the into into uh, private schools and the students of private schools than public schools, even though Congress clearly intended for more low-income children to benefit from those CARES Act. We filed a lawsuit against Betsy DeVos and prevailed, but no, not against the U.S. Senate or Congress this time. Because Betsy DeVos is part of the executive branch, um, and sort of going down this same path. And this is from Mary. She wonders, could our state and others sue the Trump administration for negligence in the COVID deaths of Washington state citizens and or the economic loss that has resulted? And I would follow up and ask if recent revelations from Bob Woodward's book about what Trump knew about the severity of COVID might impact thinking on this. So it's, I mean, it's a thoughtful question. What I'd say is first, I need to get some people here on my legal team who help us brainstorm, uh, brainstorm potential cases. And just so folks know on a serious note, if you're kind of curious how we go about coming up with cases or deciding cases, we have a team that meets every week. I mean, I'm having conversations almost every day about these cases, but there is a, we had a call today on it. And where it's a whole group of folks who are involved in this litigation. And a part of that conversation is just, hey, what's going on with the administration? What's happening? And me saying, yeah, we need to take a look at that. And the team comes back like the Postal Service, and they come back with their legal analysis, and then we make a decision. Um, so, um, but what I would say is that the, the way one needs to think about this is, is uh, for me to take an action, there has to, I can't just be outraged by what the administration is doing. It can't be incompetence. Incompetence is not a legal claim, right? There has to be an illegal action, exceeding authority, that type of thing. And so, Look, I, I'm always careful about being too definitive about anything, right? Um, and uh, but I would say that 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 is, in, as a general matter, that that is a line that that we are aware that there are things that the president might do immoral, uh, unacceptable, outrageous, you name it, but it's not illegal, right? That we don't have a legal claim to it, and so. Um, you know, again, I don't want to be absolutely. I, I, we try to keep an open mind about things, and we, and we run those to ground. Um, so I don't want to get out ahead of my team because we look at a lot of things and brainstorm a lot of things. But that is just something to keep in mind in the way we think about the law and how we utilize it. Is we need to have an illegal action, and that's that goes. That's different than incompetence, um, uh, for sure. That's a big difference. Our time is running very short. I want to get your thoughts on disinformation, and I have a couple of questions from a couple of indivisible leaders here. Uh, Chris asks, are there certain types of disinformation, specific types of disinformation that you're worried about and you're fighting against, and how would you like people to report that to you when they come across it? And I think this has to do with the election. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, I mean, great question. I mean, yes. I mean, I think this is one of the challenges for our democracy right now. Let's just be honest about it, right? There's no way to sugarcoat this. And so, you know, in some ways, while it is hard, Stefan, to say what's the worst thing this president is doing, there's been so much that's been so wrong on so many levels. But I, I think one thing that for me is near, at or near the top of the list is his total departure from norms around the truth, you know, the criticizing a free press, uh, the rule of law, the misinformation that he produces at every press conference, every rally. And, and that is, if we don't have a set agreed of facts in which we're all working around, right, that the majority of us really can agree on, well, then we'll, 
we're, we're all just ships passing in the night, right? And that is a recipe for real, real challenges as a democracy, as a republic. And so, yes, whether it's coming from social media, whether it's coming from sort of the fake news, whether it's coming from a president's Twitter, for God's sakes, right? That those are serious challenges. Now, I'll just be honest, in my work, in my role that I have right now as attorney general, you asked earlier, you know, how much sleep do I get at night, right? Not, not enough, I've got my hands full. And so my focus, Stefan, is um, I focus exclusively uh, when it comes to work at the federal level on what I can control, cases I can bring. Okay, there's a lot that is going on out there. We've talked about some of these issues where if I don't have a legal case to bring, frankly, I'm probably not reading as much about in the newspapers as folks on this call are. Not because I don't care. I'm deeply interested. It's just I've only got so much bandwidth. Right. And my bandwidth, believe me, is sucked up pretty big with the kids. Right. Running for an election and my day job and this work in particular. And so but I would say that the premise of the question is spot on, that this is a true threat to, you know, how we function as a people and I don't pretend to be an expert on seeing the way out of that, other than saying a new president, obviously, will have a huge impact, I hope and trust, in starting to change things, or at least what's coming from the president, whether all the people agree or disagree with President Biden, at least there's a shared set of these are the facts by which decisions are being made. Kevin, I hope that uh, answered your question in part. We are just right out of time here. I will just ask you one last question. When Trump is gone, how do you feel that we begin undoing the damage of a Trump administration? And specifically, how do you see your role in that? I've thought a little bit about that. Not much, because uh, we're pretty busy, but I've thought a little bit about it. Um, I, in some ways, um, you know, we've talked about some of the policies the administration's had, and some of that can be undone relatively easily. I think we talked about dreamers a fair amount. So again, the administration's trying once again to attack dreamers, as, as I think Tina was talking about. Well, if Joe Biden becomes president, I'm pretty confident on Inauguration Day, what the president's trying to do now around Dreamers, he will eliminate. Put a line through that one. We're not doing that. And then there's no more need for a legal challenge, right? There are certain actions a President Biden can do. Oil, the oil drilling plan for the wildlife refuge. I'm pretty confident that'll be undone. Our lawsuit won't be needed any longer, right? So from a policy standpoint, a lot of damage has obviously been done by this administration. Some things we've stopped in courts. Some things are still happening, right? But could be undone by a future administration that just says we're not doing that any longer. So in some respects, what I would say in thinking about life after Donald Trump, which hopefully is coming soon, is I never want to say sort of the biggest damage, but a key damage caused by the president, which I think is the most difficult to undo in some respects, Stefan, is what I referred to earlier, which is his language, what he says about the judiciary, what he says about fake news, how he lies. I mean, that that is, I have a theory in any relationship, you know, once you say something to your partner, for example, or your child, you can apologize for it later on, but it's out there. The person knows you said it, right? And it's hard to undo it. It's out there. You can apologize, but it's, it's, it's impacting the relationship. Look, four years of Donald Trump saying and tweeting what he's been saying for four years is having an impact on our country. And that is not something that Joe Biden can just put a pen through an executive order about dreamers say we're not doing that anymore, moving on, right? It doesn't work that way. It, it would take years, I think, to try and repair that damage uh, that's been done in very fundamental ways. Again, calling judges so-called judges, right? The fake news. I mean, think of the damage that's been done to institutions like independent judiciary and independent media that are foundational to our democracy. So that, I don't think anyone has an answer to that. What we need is a president who got the decency of a Joe Biden, I think, 
to help repair those rifts and hopefully get us back on the right track. I really do want to let you go. If you will just indulge me for one more question. We had six questions come through about the worry about armed <laughs> militias um, taking action around the election. And we know that this is something that the president has absolutely either tacitly or even overtly encouraged. Um, as the top law enforcement officer and in, in agent in our state, how do you view this, this threat? I guess what I would say is that, uh, you know, I, I've come to, I mean, I never thought we'd have a, a president who would ban Muslims from coming to our country, right? Or roll back protection to dreamers or say what he says about the press. So, um, or talk about moving an election for God's sake. So what I would say is that, uh, I guess I'd want people to know, I know there's probably a lot more questions is, what, if there's issues you are concerned about, right? That you're reading about or thinking about, I guess what I can say is just know that my team is thinking about those issues, right? And if there's a legal angle or a power that I have, we're not shy about using it, right? And so now sometimes I don't have that power. Sometimes it's your member of Congress who's got the power, or it's a governor who's got that. It, it can be some, someone different, right? So I've got to be mindful of my role and, and to stay in my lane, so to speak. But do I take an expansive view of what my lane is? Yeah, I think, I think that's fair to say, and my critics don't like it, right? But, but that, that is my interpretation of it. And so I try not to go down the hypothetical path too much, just for obvious reasons, right? We've got a lot that's right in front of us. But I do believe when it comes to the integrity of this election, I, I just would want you to know that there's a lot of time being spent by a lot of smart people who care a lot about our democracy and the integrity election, not just in Washington, but around the country. And, uh, and we're going to do whatever we can to make sure it's protected. Sir, I cannot thank you enough for your time, your generosity of time. And I, I do believe just by looking at the comments that uh, you have lifted a lot of spirits here tonight, mine included. Attorney General Bob Ferguson, I thank you so much. Thanks so much, Stephanie. It's movie night with my kids. They're very excited. So uh, they're upstairs. Like I can hear them up there by the door. They're ready to come on down. So thanks so much for, for all that you do. I just want to say grassroots movements are where it's at. I, I just really believe that. And people-powered movements are where it's at. And the people have the power in this country. I still believe that. And I just want to thank each and every one for what you do, right, for here in Washington State, for our local communities, and for our nation. So, look, keep the faith. We'll get through this. And just, it's great to see you. I hope you're all staying healthy, and I hope you all have a great night. Thank you again to Attorney General Bob Ferguson. You can learn more about his campaign and help out at bobferguson.com. That is Ferguson with one S. Special thanks to Montserrat Padilla, Paul Quinones, and Abigail Scholar for their help this week. Thanks also to Kat Pipkin with the Washington Indivisible Network and Julian Jievsky with Indivisible Tacoma. And that is it for today. Our website is indivisiblepodcast.org and our email address is indivisiblepodcast at gmail.com. The Washington State Indivisible Podcast is a production of Get Creative, Inc. and is part of the Demcast family of podcasts. Learn more about Demcast at demcastusa.com. Thanks this week to Catherine Fysiers. Special thanks to Lori Caldwell. And as always, my thanks to you for listening. We'll talk to you next time. Bye. Bye.